Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to the 46th episode of Barefooting with Sierra. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional land, gathering place, and traveling route of the Cree, Anishinaabe, Blackfoot, Dene, Dakota Sioux, Métis, and others for time immemorial. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I alternate between using she, her, and they, them pronouns. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. In this episode, I interviewed Gabrielle Batiste, who is running for Edmonton City Council, representing Ward O'Damon. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts. Novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I'll give you updates on what I'm working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. Let's get started. First up, novels. I had a chance to try out the GPT-3 artificial intelligence writing tool this week. Don't worry, I'm not shifting to AI-created novels. I did find it helpful in kickstarting my train of thought again when I got a little bit of writer's block, though. It takes what you've already written and adds as many words as you tell it to after you've put your text into it. The more you input, the better of an idea it gets of your writing style, your characters, and the way they each speak. You can request to try it at openai.com. In novel news, Chris Wagner at the Los Angeles Times released a list of the most memorable books at about 9-11. Here's the article. It's been 20 years, long enough to name the most memorable novel about September 11th. This shouldn't come as a huge surprise, but most of the most memorable books you'd consider 9-11 novels aren't really about the narrow timeline of September 11th, 2001. They're about desperation and survival, physical and emotional, and the sensation of being alive after witnessing mass public murder. They're about the strength of a city brought to its knees but never laid out flat. They're about social politics and identity politics and the politics of memory. Twenty years have now passed since the bright morning turned unholy nightmare that forever changed the world, spawning for just one example America's longest war which we hope ended last week. Those who weren't direct witnesses or survivors may not think about that day as much as we once did. That's one reason why we read. To remember the wound and the shift, to stay close to humanity at its most elemental when so many fresh distractions and anxieties want to pull us away. Twenty years gives us enough distance to assess what we have read, or haven't but should, about that time. What fiction can pull us back in while at the same time expanding our understanding of what happened and to whom? At this dark milestone, what follows is an attempt, perhaps futile, to cull the long list of 9-11 novels before selecting with with trepidation the best of the bunch. It is not a definitive roundup, and even if it were, it would be absurdly subjective. Instead, it's an overview of the fiction that has stayed with me over the years, a look back at books that never let go. 
You might remember hearing about what it was like to be a Muslim after the attacks, or to even look like a Muslim. In Amy Waldman's The Submission, 2011, a jury is tasked with selecting a new 9-11 memorial from a group of anonymous entries. The winner, a beautiful garden, wins praise all around until the architect is revealed to be a Muslim, at which point all hell breaks loose. It's a great premise for a novel, one that touches numerous third rails. Waldman's finest creation is the architect, Muhammad Khan. He's an American native and a fiercely secular one at that, but the controversy awakens something in him, a stubborn individualism and a refusal to kowtow to ignorance. He goes out on a limb by insisting his work speak for itself, much as Waldman, a former New York Times reporter with a shrewd, subtle sense of satire, demands that artists be judged by their art. Waldman excels at putting the reader in another person's shoes. So does her fellow journalist Lorraine Adams, whose novel Harbor, 2004, brings us inside an Algerian immigrant community in the Boston area. These strivers have no use for jihad, but the year is 1999 and the FBI is already on high terror alert. Beginning with the torturous journey of Aziz from Algeria, Adams reminds us that new arrivals are often escaping something far worse. Aziz and his friends fall under FBI surveillance, priming us to scorn the feds. But then Adams flips the script and shifts to their perspective, illustrating the near impossible process of hunting terrorists. Harbor reads like a lost season of The Wire, in which everybody tries and nobody wins. It's a world unto itself, granular in detail, but far-reaching in scope. Both the submission and harbor take seriously the idea that fiction breeds empathy, asking us to look at 9-11 through different lenses. Pakistani writer Moshin Hamid, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, the reluctant fundamentalist, 2007, takes this even further. He deconstructs and then demolishes the Western narrative safety net of the America-loving immigrant, the model minority. His novel follows the aptly named Shangez, a Pakistani immigrant who builds himself an all-American life, degree from Princeton, beautiful American girl, successful career in finance. Then the love affair ends, and when the terrorists attack the World Trade Center, Shangez feels almost euphoric. Shangez isn't an unreliable narrator so much as a man coming to terms with the mask he has so easily worn. This is a novel of identity in flux, in which the protagonist's American facade crumbles like the illusion of American invincibility. As Chungus tells his story to an American in a Lahore cafe, he also unburdens himself to us and dares us to judge. One structure not uncommon to the 9-11 novel is the culmination. As in Harbor, the plot builds toward the horrible day, both illuminating the event's impact on individual lives and employing it in the service of a dramatic climax. Claire Massoud's The Emperor's Children, 2006, is a prime example. Her novel focuses on three 30-something New Yorkers navigating the question of what to do with their lives, not knowing they will soon be forever changed, their status pursuits thrown into stark relief. Movers and shakers, in the world of arts, culture, and ideas, these dubious heroes perform their own comedy of manners until the day catastrophe breaks down the door. And finally, two characters are doing what we all did, watching the unthinkable unfold. Masood's blend of frivolity and death is risky, and it only works because it reflects the communal quality of the event. The pain of that day was distributed wildly unevenly, from the valleys of Afghanistan to the suburbs of New Jersey. But its impact was felt everywhere, especially in a city that for years had blithely ridden a wave of wealth and unquestioned power. This communal effect is both a truism, tragedy brings people together, 
and an awful irony. In the days following the attacks, I remember feeling particularly close to my friends and loved ones, as if we'd survived the same plane crash. Don DeLillo, the high priest of Chile postmodernism, would seem an odd candidate for channeler of the 9-11 touchy-feelies. But there's something about his parable, Falling Man, 2007, that reminds us how we're wired to stay together. When Keith, a lawyer, narrowly escapes one of the burning towers, he stumbles about in the inferno outside, dazed and bloody. His lizard brain tells him to take shelter with his estranged wife, Leanne. What follows is a sort of memory play that makes one wish Alan René, Hiroshima, Mon Amour, were around to adapt Falling Man for the screen. Then again, if he were, he might, how might he capture this? The dead were everywhere, in the air, in the rubble, on rooftops nearby, in the breezes that carried from the river. They were settled in ash and drizzled on windows, all along the streets, in his hair and on his clothes. If that sounds like a bit much, you might consider Jonathan Safran Foer's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, 2005. It's about a scavenger hunt of sorts, with the scavenger, nine-year-old Oscar, searching for people who can tell him about a key that belonged to his father, who died in the World Trade Center. A troubled boy, suffering from heavy trauma, he stretches the parameters of his shrinking world in the course of his investigation. The book is remembered largely for its photo finish, a reverse flip book of sorts, in which a dead man leaps from the ground and up through the air, back into the no longer doomed tower. It's a bit cute for such a grisly event, but not nearly so much as a downright maudlin movie adaptation. And what are the towers themselves? These audacious 70s structures were widely mocked for their hubris and their monolithic rectangularity, symbols of big-box America and brutalist temples of high finance, which made them targets nearly 40 years later. They took on new meaning ever after, but the first person to force us to see them anew was a French tightrope walker named Philippe Petit, who decided to string a wire between them and dance among the clouds one morning in 1974. This act is the loose organizing principle of Colin McCann's Let the Great World Spin, 2009, which, though mostly set in the 1970s, gets my vote as the best 9-11 novel. Like the Oscar-winning documentary Man on Wire and the underrated, magical 2015 Robert Zemeckis feature The Walk, McCann's novel frames Petty's stunt as a transcendent moment in New York's history. But the author uses that transcendence to reflect on ordinary lives and to suggest that in fact no life is ordinary. An Irish immigrant minister to prostitutes from a South Bronx project. A group of women gathers to drink tea and mourn their sons killed in Vietnam. An artist couple try to wrap their heads around a fatal car accident they might have caused. This New York teams with the interior life of James Joyce's Dublin or Virginia Woolf's London. As Petit walks in the sky, the city is brought together. One day it will have to come together again, its towers turn to rubble. But the city will survive. It has to. Let the Great World Spin is a 9-11 novel, but it's much more than that. It's a reminder of our common humanity. That's what the best fiction does. It makes us think and feel together, and it insists we keep going. My most memorable 9-11 book didn't make that list. It's Cheyenne in New York by Jack Wayland. My mom gave me this book for Christmas the year I was 15, so four years after the September 11th terrorist attacks. It's about a young woman from Idaho named Cheyenne, who predictably goes to New York to work at an advertising agency. After the 9-11 attacks, she kind of has an existential crisis, because who freaking cares about serial ads after watching airplanes fly into buildings? 
there's also a cheesy romance element that Jack Wayland is able to do like nobody else. After being convicted of possessing information likely to be used in preparing a terror attack, 21-year-old Ben John from Lincoln, England was given a rather unusual sentence. John downloaded almost 70,000 white supremacist documents and bomb-making instructions. He also wrote an essay filled with hate speech against gay people, immigrants, and liberals. His conviction carries a maximum sentence of 15 years in jail. Instead, Judge Timothy Spencer wrote it off as a youthful mistake and told John to read better material. Start with Pride and Prejudice and Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Think about Hardy. In an opinion piece in The Guardian, Catherine Bennett wrote, the, world, the, the judge would, he said, be testing John himself, being presumably better than most exam boards at detecting reliance on spark notes. Not that these include among the key questions on Pride and Prejudice, what can Charlotte Lucas's marriage tell us about the escalating rise of online extremism? Not forgetting what misreading of Pride and Prejudice do you think has made this text particularly appealing to white supremacists? New York Times culture reporter Jennifer Schessler wrote back in 2017, Some alt-right admirers hail Austin's novels as blueprints for a white nationalist ethno-state. And now for comics. I didn't actually get a comic done this week. I've been really under the weather. I did get tested for COVID and it came back negative. I think it's been the flu or something, but it's just, it's been a week. Didn't get a comic done. In comics news, Central Alberta Fan Fest, which I'm holding a panel at, is happening online September 27th through October 2nd. My panel takes place on September 30th. You can find out more at canopalibrary.com. Florida State University announced that nearly 5,000 items have gone missing and are presumed stolen from the Robert M. Irvin Jr. Collection, which was housed but not displayed at the FSU Special Collections and Archives at Strozier Library. Among the missing items are rare serial comics from the 1950s through 1970s, including Batman, Superman, Aquaman, Avengers, Captain America, Conan the Barbarian, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Four, Green Lantern, Iron Man, Popeye, Silver Surfer, Doom Patrol, Thor, Wonder Woman, X-Men, as well as magazines, digests, and children's books. The collection was donated in 1981. Robert M. Irvin Jr. amassed the collection as a child and teen. He told the Tallahassee Democrat that he is saddened by the loss of the collection of inestimable value and hopeful that some, if not all, will be recovered. Listen up, everybody, because you are not going to want to miss this. Naveo Photo Journals has an exclusive offer for my listeners. With back to school, COVID still going on, and all the regular everyday craziness in the world, Naveo has come up with the perfect solution for sharing photos with faraway family members. Just download their app, add your photos, and tell them where to send it. At the end of the month, Naveo prints and ships your photo book to whoever you ask them to. Your parents in another country, or your brother off at university, or your grandparents you haven't seen before the pandemic, it's up to you. And with this exclusive offer, you can get your first two months absolutely free. Just use discount code BAREFOOT. That's B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T, all capital letters, in the Naveo app. My grandparents love their Naveo photo books, and your relatives will too. All right, next up is journalism, which means it's time for my interview with Gabrielle Batiste. 
Hi, Gabrielle. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, and what prompted you to run for City Council Representative for the Ward O. Damon here in Edmonton. Sure. So my name's Gabrielle Batiste. I'm from, currently I'm from Edmonton. And at this point in time, I think I've lived in Edmonton the longest I've lived everywhere, anywhere in my life. I've moved around a lot, probably about 30 different places. And and now I've finally found a home. So it's exciting for me. I've been here for about eight years now. Um, what brings me to run for city council? Well, three things, essentially. Number one, we absolutely need more women on council. We have nowhere near parity. And it's just, it's not working for anyone. Uh, the more voices you have from diverse populations, the better a city is run. I, I think that's well-established. And starting with the basics like gender parity is really important. Number two, I've got a 27-year-old son. Uh, he's autistic. He's survived cancer. He's a type 1 diabetic. He needs inclusive opportunities. And there is such a huge segment of our society, our citizenship here in Edmonton, that needs inclusive opportunities. And what that means is, you know, we need opportunities for good employment. We need affordable housing. We need opportunities to be able to be safe in our community when we walk around. Um, and we need opportunities to uh, have no stigma attached to anything that anything about us and makes us who we are as individuals where we have inherent value. And the third thing is, um, I think that we so my home is here in this ward, this particular ward, and I think that's important that, that you live in your ward. My businesses are in this ward. My family's in this ward. My pets are in this ward. <laughs> um, and I'm not represented by a political party. I'm not backed by a political party. So there are eight candidates in this ward. Some are backed by the Liberals. Some are backed by the NDP. Some are backed by the UCP. I've sworn an oath, the AUMA pledge, to actually represent the residents here and not tow a political party ideology. So I think that's extremely important. I'm not going to have any ties to anybody going into politics. Excellent. So let's talk um, a little bit about some of your campaign issues. Let's start with affordable housing. So how do you plan to support the homeless and assist low-income individuals in our district? Again, I, I mean, that's a massive segment of our population right now because the city has made conscious decisions to isolate and create a center of poverty in our downtown district here. And it's inherently poor decision-making to put people who are experiencing despair in an ever-growing circle of other people experiencing despair. It's important to create a supportive community where people can be mentored. So I don't know if you've heard of Ambrose Place. Ambrose Place is, in my opinion, one of the only places that actually works to house people. And the reason that it works to house the hostless population is because it is run by Niganan Developments, which is an Indigenous-led development company. So the home itself, the wraparound services are all Indigenous-led for Indigenous people from a cultural perspective. So it gives an, and, and it provides 24 seven wraparound community right within that housing establishment where it takes the opportunity to get people back in touch with their heritage, with themselves, 
so that they can find that center and then begin to wean off alcohol and drugs, get the care that they deserve, whether they're getting palliative care, whether they're getting emergency care, they have that all on site. And so they are actually able to house then, put those people into supportive housing, some of the hardest to house Edmontonians that we have. We all know warehousing and shelter space does not work. That is a stopgap measure and it's not the right solution. Neither is centralizing poverty. So we need to have more of those smaller wraparound Ambrose-like places that get people in touch with who they are and with a community that can support and mentor them. And we need to locate those throughout communities in Edmonton so that those broader communities can provide that mentorship opportunity as well. So that's just one component. The other component is obviously making connections with organizations and empowering community to help as well. So the city doesn't have to control everything. We need to work with other levels of government, not throw stones at them. Um, I've worked in provincial, I've worked in federal, uh, and I'm going to keep those lines of communication open. Whether or not I agree with what they're currently doing or what their path is, finding common ground is the most important thing to do in order to be able to actually get anything and achieve what we need. And thirdly, I've already, I I currently sit on the board of Savita, which used to be Capital Region Housing, and we provide 4,500 homes of supportive housing, near market housing, market housing. And we are currently redirecting our resources to provide even more, to increase the opportunities that we have at our residences so that people are safe, so that they have a community, and so that they feel like they can um, reintegrate at whatever stage they are in their journey through life. Excellent. All, all great points. And what about mental health care? Uh, You have ample experience with autism as the, you know, the mother of an autistic child and you've been on the president of autism Edmonton. What about other disabilities? Yeah, absolutely. And I've spoken with a number of individuals who have both physical and mental disabilities, and understanding that A, it's okay to call them disabilities. And in fact, that's the only way that we can get supports. And I say we, because I have PTSD. So I've had PTSD for a very long time. Um, I'm a survivor of decades of sexual and physical abuse. And so to me, having actual representation by people living with disabilities is critical and being able to uh, speak with them on an ongoing basis, get their feedback and start at the place where you're developing policies, look at all of your policies, bylaws and processes through the lens of inclusion and accessibility. And accessibility is really, really important, especially when it comes to employment and housing. You know, even take things and I've, I've spoken with several people, they can't even attend, get to a washroom at some of the restaurants on Jasper Ave. They love going out and being social, but there's no accessible washroom and that's degrading. It's ridiculous, especially today. And then if I look at our disability council that this particular council has put together, there are three people with disabilities on it. That's it. The rest are researchers. That's not appropriate. Every single person on there should have a disability. We can connect with researchers anytime we want. We don't need to have them advising us on disabilities that they don't have. So I want that council to have actual disabilities and a mix of physical and mental disabilities. And I want them to be paid for their services. 
So again, reviewing our bylaws, policies, and processes through the lens of inclusion and accessibility and our hiring practices, making City of Edmonton the first and foremost place where we walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So getting rid of cover letters, for one thing. I mean, there are so many jobs that people, so for instance, autistic people who don't necessarily um, express themselves in flowery language and uh, are very straightforward and sometimes even come off as rude, that has nothing to do with whether or not they can do the job. Um, you know, and that translates to newcomers here who English as a second language, all kinds of things. Making sure we have a space for people if they need some time out where it's quiet, making sure we've got accessible washrooms, making sure that the little buttons that you push, and this is one, that they're actually at the height that you can push them <laughs> and not way up here where somebody who's walking can push it. So all of those things, Edmonton City has to be a leader and they have to stop just talking about it and start doing it. All great points. And it all is interconnected. Um, so what about supporting people with hidden disabilities and how does the city pay for all of these supports? Oh, great question. Um, I, there are, this is kind of why I've got on my platform, the Stop the Pet Projects. So there are some basics in life, like uh, being treated and accommodated as a person of value that we need to concentrate on first. Things like having accessible transit, all of those things that we should be directing and focusing our resources on and not spreading our resources out um, to projects that aren't actually getting us the basics to help us get around right now. Because I don't, I don't have a problem pausing those high-level ideological projects. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying that we don't need them. We do. It's good to have future focus, and I do have a future focus. But right now, coming out of the pandemic and coming out of our economic downturn, we really need to make sure that we provide an equitable community for everyone. And what that means is, for instance, there is a 1% art installation that we um, account, that we set aside from every single construction project that we do. And that can amount to billions of dollars that's going to create silver balls by the river and arts, art installations on top of um, buildings that you never actually even notice. And don't get me wrong, I love art. I really do. I enjoy it. But we can pause that for the next four years and redirect those resources in order to creating accessible communities, to providing supports to small businesses so, so, so that they, on those roads that we want them to transfer and our, our um, transit along in our uh, ward, can create accessible washrooms. Uh, those kinds of things where we need to focus on connecting people and not on um, other projects that may, we might want to do, but we don't need to do right now. For sure. You know, we've got to have that people focus. Art is great. However, you know, people have physical needs that have to be have to be met. Yes. Um, let's talk police reform. How can we delegate tasks onto more appropriate agencies and social supports? Great question. So I don't support defunding police. And that's it's kind of a buzzword that's being used to lop 30 percent off the top of the police budget like that's going to solve anything <laughs> because it won't. This is a systemic issue. And you can't just by taking that 30 percent of the budget, then throw it at a different solution and hope that that then is going to work. 
So what I'm proposing is this, it's a bit of a hybrid combination because we all know that paramilitary organizations have systemic issues, whether it's racism, whether it's gender uh, issues, uh, bias, whether it's um, ability or disability issues, you know, that they need that training and understanding all the way through their careers. And, and don't worry, I'll get to these, the heart of what you asked. And one of the reasons that we, one of the ways that we can deal with that is through what I've, what I am a part of now, and that is having created this Coalition for Canadian Police Reform, which is a cross-Canada organization with people who are former police chiefs, former uh, police officers, researchers, uh, people with lived experience who are lobbying the government to create a national policing professional college. And that is one of the recommendations that was brought to our city council to support. We've already been doing that. So it's not just that I talk about things, I actually start doing them. And so we want to provide a curriculum from the lived person perspective so that officers are trained throughout the career um, arc that they have on how best to interact with people and how best to de-escalate and how best to um, not have use of force first top of mind. So that's number one, to create a systemic reform. Number two, and I'm not saying these necessarily in order of priority, number two um, is reviewing all of our social safety supports. So you've got police and fire. So do we need a tank? No, we don't need a, a tank, right? There's, there's no reason in my mind I can think of that we need a tank, nor do we need little vehicles that are cute for police to run around Heritage Fest um, promoting policing. We don't need that either. We don't need a massive wrap on a car. And um, I'm not sure that fire needs sea-doos <laughs> to zip around the river. They've already got, you know, appropriate boats that they can use for rescue, et cetera. Uh, and we need to look at city operations because that plays a huge part in social supports as well. 211, they provide an awful lot of money to reach to find the 211 line that nobody can get through on. I've called the 211 line so many times and been on a hold for 20 minutes. And, and then some people I've spoken to have then been told, oh, you should have called 911. <laughs> so, and then I call 911 and I get them and they say, this is not the number you should be calling. You should be calling pound something else. And I, and so I call them and by then it's too late. It's way too late. So city operations, um, we need to have a look at that because of course, safety means something different to everybody, but then also the money that we give to social agencies and community leagues, because what we have here is a failure of communication and a failure of resource sharing and a failure of flow of information because the community knows what's happening where it's happening, when, and often who's involved because they've got video, right? Or whatever they have. And then if they have a centralized location to send information, then these agencies, the city, fire, um, police, uh, 211, Reach, Boyle, all of, you know, all of those agencies, Bear Claw, they can deploy the person who's most appropriate to, to attend to the problem at hand. So creating that centralized flow and uh, a flow of information and sharing of resources is critical to enabling us as a community to be, to be part of the solution and to actually advancing a positive reply in a timely manner. 
Absolutely. So centralized flow of information. It just, it serves everyone so much better. Yeah. It's just, it makes sense. Right. <laughs> and Not I've, everything is confidential. Share people. <laughs> I've had that same experience where I've called 211. They told me to call 911. And by the time I got through, it's like, well, yeah, too late. <laughs> exactly. It's useless at that point. Yeah. Um, so kind of related to, to your campaign, but not specifically something I saw anywhere actually, you know, laid out in these words. What have you personally done to implement the truth and reconciliation calls to action? That's a good question. Um, so I've, I've had a lot of um, experience working with Indigenous people. Um, I've been the executive director of Elizabeth Fry in Saskatchewan. Uh, I was on the board there first and then became the executive director. So I've worked a lot with incarcerated Indigenous women. I worked in Indian residential schools with the federal government for three years and totally the wrong uh, side to have been on because it was horrendous. It was absolutely awful. Um, I don't know how anyone stays there. Three years was all I could handle because here I am listening to all of these victims of abuse uh, telling me their stories over and over and over again um, and trying to advocate to my minister afterwards to get them something, anything to help compensate for the pain and suffering that they've gone through and knowing that that is just at its at its most basic level, despicable, <laughs> right? And knowing that most of that money went to Tony Merchant <laughs> and law firms that represented these individuals and not to the individuals was sickening. And knowing the documents there that were not disclosed, deliberately not disclosed, and I could see them on a bookshelf as I walked by, it was heartbreaking. Um, I think I was the first person in Canada actually to apologize on behalf of the government because that's the, that's the thing I did my very first time out there and I was almost fired. That was the reaction. You will not apologize for what's gone on or you will be fired. And so as a single mom at that time, like I, I was supporting my son and trying to make ends meet. It was a catch 22 situation. So when it comes to truth and reconciliation, that's really important to me because, you know, more than some people who are white and blonde and, and come from a position that has nothing to do with residential schools, I have heard and can empathize with what's happened because I've heard so much of it. And I have a deep understanding from both sides, what the federal government did, what the churches did to these people to eradicate them off the face of the planet, to eradicate their culture. It is important that our city creates partnerships and supports and empowers indigenous run businesses and indigenous voices um, Naming the wards Indigenous names is a start, but they also have, uh, it's also important to, you know, change ward names like we're doing to make sure that 
that culture is never lost because that's our heritage as Canadians. We are of that heritage. We are on this land that is Indigenous land, you know, because we stole it. So we need to work together to create a Canada that reflects and embodies all our diverse cultures, starting with Indigenous culture from, you know, that that is the basis and foundation of where we are. So as much as I can moving forward, I would like to try and work with organizations that are Indigenous run to empower Indigenous run organizations and to empower Indigenous voices to be heard um, so that we can have meaningful discussions, dialogue, and eventually reconciliation uh, through the benevolence of their forgiveness, quite frankly. Thank you for sharing that. That's quite impactful. Um, what advice do you have for people as they choose to vote who, um, who to vote for? Oh, boy. Okay, so the first thing that I'm going to say is one of the things that I led with, please don't vote for a party-backed candidate. The thought just sickens me. Provincial politics, federal politics should have no part in municipal politics because our purpose in running is to represent residents and resident voice. I mean, I need to listen to everybody as much as I either agree or disagree with what individual voices have to say. Every person has value and every person deserves representation. And so by me not having to only tow a particular party line, that is the one of one of the most beautiful things about municipal politics, or it should be. I'm not scripted by the liberals. I'm not scripted by the NDP, and I don't owe, owe any kind of association to that. And so, or the UCP, please let me make sure that I say that, even though my signs are blue, I like blue. <laughs> it calms me. <laughs> Little did I know it's such a really bad reaction here. Um, But in order to be able to be truly representative of residents, please vote for somebody who's independent um, and who has signed the AUMA pledge. So I took that pledge and because I'm a lawyer, I actually rewrote it and I made it stronger. (laughs) So, and then I signed it and then I posted it. So number one, that number two, look at what people have actually done with their lives. How much, have, how much time have they devoted to the community to give back? What are they actually doing and have they already done? Aside from just now, all of a sudden deciding that they're going to get involved, have they already started to do what they say? Actions matter. Words are just words. And number three, vote for experience. Um, not the kind of experience that we've had for the last 20 years and obviously isn't working because nothing, no real progress has been made on the homelessness issue, on reconciliation, on, um, you know, spending less on projects that don't work, but vote for somebody who has all the right skills and abilities to hit the ground day one, not have a six month learning curve, because right now we're at this point in time with pandemic and economic uh, issues and all of the underlying um, inclusion and accessibility issues where we need somebody that knows what they're doing, has already started to act on that and has the experience to understand how to start day one. And that is hopefully me. (laughs) All great points. Um, Where can people go to learn more about your campaign? 
You can go to my website at www.gabrielleforyeg.com. I am on all the social media handles that I could possibly think of at Gabrielle for Yeg, and it's the number four. And uh, that includes YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, you can also check out, please, my LinkedIn profile, because that has all of the things that I've accomplished that already speak to my profile. So you can find me there under Gabrielle Batiste. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Gabrielle, for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciated talking with you and best of luck to you. Thank you so much, Sierra. I love your podcast. I think you're doing a magnificent job. Thank you for having me. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. In Barefoot News, Dustin Jones with Georgia Public Broadcasting interviewed two volunteers who flew with an American Airlines crew to help evacuate Afghani refugees. Here's that article. Lauren George has spent the last 35 years working as a flight attendant with American Airlines. Each year, she's registered for the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, a program in which airlines voluntarily assist the Defense Department during a time of crisis. In the late night hours of August 23rd, her call finally came. Like much of the world, George was aware of the chaos unfolding on the ground in Afghanistan. So when an American Airlines employee called to see if she was still wanted to volunteer for the Civil Reserve, she knew exactly where she was going. George wasn't able to fall back asleep after she hung up the phone. Instead, her mind wandered, picturing what the coming days would look like. The American Airlines flight that she boarded in New York the following day was all but empty. Just her, 10 other flight attendants, and four pilots. The pilots gave a quick brief before takeoff, and the flight arrived at an Air Force base in Germany about nine hours later. The whole experience seemed surreal, George explained, like something out of the movies. The refugees boarded the aircraft in an orderly fashion and found their seats. Some carried a bag, most had nothing. Some wore shoes, many were barefoot. Everyone was exhausted. George recalls bringing one Afghan woman her first hot meal in over a week, a thought that still brings tears to her eyes. That was everything to this woman, George said, and it was story after story like that that we hear from these passengers. That kept us going. The flight crew worked nonstop to care for the passengers over the next 27 hours. Aboard the flight were much-needed supplies, baby diapers and formula, amenity kits and clean clothes, crayons, coloring books, and toys for the children. While the parents slept, the children set off to explore the airplane. Most people on board had never been flown before boarding the military aircraft that carried them out of Kabul. One child, whom George believed to be about 10, spoke English remarkably well. The young man offered to help the volunteers, shuttling cups of warm tea from the galley to the passengers, all while practicing his English with the crew. George was amazed at the courage of the passengers. Hundreds of people had piled onto a plane bound for an unknown destination and an uncertain future. To have that kind of trust to board an aircraft, not knowing where they were going, was one more layer to do as much as we could for these people, George said. I know going forward, if I have something difficult in my life, I can measure it against their difficult path that they have, have ahead of them. And while George has tried to picture the lives left behind by such brave people, another Civil Reserve Air Fleet volunteer was reliving the worst experience of his childhood. Zach Kogiani, a 53-year-old pilot for United Airlines, fled Afghanistan with his parents in 1977. He came from a politically involved family. His grandfather had served as a senator and a judge, and his father governed three provinces. Kogiani's father, who left the country six months ahead of his wife and son, decided it was time for his family to get out of the country, too. 
Kogani remembers well the car ride to Kabul. His grandparents drove him and his mother to the airport at night and in secret. In his lap, a single bag. No toys, family photos, or heirlooms connecting him with his past. Everybody knew this could be our final goodbye, Kogani said. I never saw my grandparents or extended family again. He was nine years old. Today, Kogani has 27 years of commercial flights under his belt. He lives in Phoenix, Arizona with his wife and twin 14-year-old sons. And when he saw that the Pentagon was activating the Silver Reserve Air Fleet, he knew it was his chance to help. It was very important to me personally because I knew what these people were going through, what they felt, and what was going through their minds, Kogani explained. Many of them left with nothing, and it is very difficult for them to look forward because they left so many loved ones behind. I know what that's like. He wrote United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby pleading for an opportunity to help. A short time later, Kogani found himself bound for an airbase in Germany, not as a pilot, but as an interpreter. Kosh Amadid, he told the passengers, welcoming them, them in Dari. Welcome. His words were met with confusion at first and then relief, then mostly smiles. Nearly everyone aboard shared essentially the same story. As an interpreter, Kogiani was able to lend a sympathetic ear. He helped comfort and care for 1,002 passengers on three flights over the course of nine days. When he finally returned home to his family in Phoenix, Kogiani could tell his boys missed him more than they might have let on because of how long the hugs lasted. They weren't at all surprised that their father stepped up to help. It's who he is, an American with strong Afghan roots. Americans are generous with their heart, and taught to be compassionate and accepting, Kogiani said. Flying these people out is just the beginning of their journey. It's a very touching story. And American bikini designer Sophia Kim is experiencing a bit of culture shock after moving to Australia, where it is much more common to be barefoot all the time than it is in North America. In a video on her Sophia in Sydney TikTok account, she posted a video of people going barefoot in a Woolworths store, noting her culture shock, and pointing out that masks are required, but shoes are not. It's kind of what I was saying in the last episode with the security guards at the mall enforcing social distancing, but not caring about shoes at all. Masks are enforced by a provincial law right now, or mandate. Shoes, not so much. That's all for this week's episode. I'll be back next week with an interview with Adrian Brough, who is also running for Edmonton City Council, representing Ward O'Damon. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at sierrathebarefoot, on Facebook as sierrathebarefootgirl, on Twitter at sierrabarefoot, and on TikTok at sierraisbarefoot. You can follow the podcast itself on Instagram at barefootingwithsierra. All of my books are available on Amazon. My comics are available on Instagram at worldofpossums, on Facebook, Possum Pete Comics, and on Patreon.com slash Possum Pete. Thank you to Legion X for the intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, and please share it with a friend if you've enjoyed it. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.